0: BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash you to sleep. That's try better, H E L P, and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for bore you to sleep listeners. With 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward/bore you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from True Love: A story of English domestic life, Written by Sarah E. Farrow and published in 1891. The story looks at life in an English household that is not immune to the fever that is sweeping through the villages around them. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. I am grateful that you have chosen this podcast to assist with your sleep. It is designed to play in the background, whether you choose to focus on it or not. I love hearing from listeners of the show. Thanks to Juan from Mexico for reaching out on Instagram. Also thank you to Aaron for reaching out on Instagram to send your gratitude and support. If you do find the podcast beneficial, there is a small but hugely helpful favor that you can provide. Please share the podcast with a friend, and if possible, kindly leave a review in your podcast app. There are a lot of people out there who are struggling with sleep, and my goal is to help as many people as possible get the sleep that they need. If you would like, you can also say hello at boreyoutosleep.com, where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, at boreyoutosleep. In the meantime, relax, lie back, and enjoy the readings. True Love, a story of English domestic life by Sarah E. Farrow. Preface The author is aware that she is entering a field which has been diligently cultivated by the best minds in Europe and America. Her design in the preparation of this story is to give to the public a sketch of her ideas on the effect of true love, I have tried to make the plot exciting without being sensational or common, although within the bounds of proper romance, and create a set of characters, most of whom are like real people, with whose thoughts and passions we are able to sympathize, and whose language and conduct may be appreciable or reprehensible, according to the circumstances. Great pains have been taken to make this work superior in its arrangement and finish, and in the general tastefulness of its mechanical execution. How nearly the author has accomplished her purpose to give to the public... In one volume, a clear and complete treatise on the subject, combining many fine qualities of importance to the reader, the intelligent and experienced public must decide. Chapter 1. Mrs. Brewster's Daughters A fine old door of oak, A heavy door standing deep within a portico inside of which you might have driven a coach brings you to the residence of Mrs Brewster. The hall was dark and small, the only light admitted to be from windows of stained glass. Numberless passages branched off from the hall. One peculiarity being that you could scarcely enter a single room in it, but you must first go down the passage, short or long, to get to it. Had the house been designed by an architect, with a head upon his shoulders and a little common sense within it, he might have made a respectable house to say the least, as it was, the rooms were cramped and narrow, cornered and confined, and the good space was taken up by these worthless passages. A plot of ground before it was crowded with flowers, far too crowded for good taste. As the old gardener would point out to her, but Mrs Brewster loved flowers, and would not part with one of them. Being the daughter of a carpenter, and the wife of a merchant tailor, she had scrambled through life amidst bustle and poverty, moving from one house to another, never settled anywhere for long. It was an existence not to be envied, although it is the lot of many, She was Mrs Brewster, and her husband was not a very good husband to her. He was rather too fond of amusing himself, and threw all the care upon her shoulders. She spent her time nursing her sickly children, and endeavouring to make one dollar go as far as two. One day, to her unspeakable embarrassment, she found herself changed from a poor woman in moderate circumstances to an heiress to a certain degree, her father having received a legacy from a relative, and upon his death it was willed to her. She had much sorrow, having lost one child after another, until she had but two left, then she lost her husband and her father, then settled at Belleville near her husband's native place. Upon her limited means, all she possessed was the interest upon the sum her father had left her, the whole not exceeding $2,000. She had two daughters, Marianne and Janey. The contrast between them was great. You could see it most remarkably as they sat together, and her love for them was as contrasted as light is with darkness. Marianne she regarded with an inordinate affection amounting almost to a passion. For Janie, she did not care. What could be the reason of this? What is the reason that parents, many such may be found, will love some of their children and dislike others they cannot tell any more than she could ask? Ask them and they will be unable to give you an answer. It does not lie in the children. It often happens that these obtaining the least love will be the most deserving of it. Such was the case here. Mary Ann Brewster was a pale, sickly, fretful girl, full of whims, full of complaints, giving trouble to everybody about her. Janie, with her sweet countenance and her merry heart, made the sunshine of her home she bore with her sister's exacting moods, she bore with her mother's want of love. She loved them both and waited on them, and carolled forth her snatches of song as she moved around the house, and was as happy as the day was long. Ask the servants, they kept only two. And they would tell you that Mrs. Brewster was cross and selfish, but Miss Janie was worth her weight in gold. The gold was soon to be transplanted to a home where it would be appreciated and cherished, for Janie was the affianced wife of Charles Taylor. For nearly a mile beyond Belleville lived Charles Taylor, a quiet, refined gentleman, and the son of a wealthy capitalist. His father had not only made a fortune of his own, but had several bestowed upon him. He had died several years before this time, and his wife survived him one year. There were three sisters, a cousin and two servants, that had lived in this family for a number of years. The beams of the setting sun streamed into the dining room of the Taylor mansion. It was a room of fine proportions, not dull and heavy as it is with the custom of some dining rooms, but light and graceful as could be wished. Charles Taylor with his fine beauty, sat at one end of the room. Miss Mary Taylor, a maiden lady of mature years, good-looking also in her peculiar style, sat opposite him. She wore a white dress, its make remarkably young, and her hair fell in ringlets. Young also. At her right hand, sat Matilda, singularly attractive in her quiet loveliness, with her silver-dotted muslin dress trimmed with white ribbons. At her left sat Martha, quiet in manner, plain in features, she had large grey eyes, reflective strangely deep, with a circle of darker grey around them, When they were cast upon you, it was not as though they looked at you, but at what was within you, at your mind, your thoughts. At least such was the impression they carried. Thus sat this worthy group, deep in thought, for they had been conversing about the weather that had been so damp for it had been raining for months, and the result was a malarial fever, visiting the residents of Belleville, and it was very dangerous, for the sufferer would soon lapse into unconsciousness, and all was over. And it was generally believed that the fever was abated, A rap at the door brought Charles Taylor to his feet. It was George, the old gardener. He had come to tell them the fever had broken out again. What, exclaimed Charles, the fever broken out again. Yes, it have, said George, who had the build of a Dutchman, and was taciturn upon most subjects. In manner, he was most surly, and would hold his own opinion, especially if it touched upon his occupation against the world. The news fell upon Charles's heart like a knell. He fully believed the danger to have passed, though not yet the sickness. Are you sure that the fever has broken out again, George? He asked after a pause. I ain't no surer than I was told, returned George. I met Dr. Brown, and he said as he passed that the fever had broken out again. Do you know where? asked Charles. He said I believe, but I didn't catch it. If I stopped to listen to the talk of fevers, Where would my work be? George moved on here he had done speaking, possibly from the impression that the present talk was not going forward for his work. Taking his black silk hat, Charles said, I shall go out and see if I can glean any news. I hope it may be a false report. He was just outside the walks when he saw Dr. Brown, the most popular doctor in the village, coming along quickly in his buggy. Charles motioned his hand, and the driver pulled up. Is it true this fresh report of fever? Too true, I fear, replied the doctor. I am on my way now, just summoned. Who's attacked? Mary Ann Brewster. The name appeared to startle Charles. Mary Ann Brewster, he uttered, she will never pull through it. The doctor raised his eyebrows as if he had thought it doubtful and motioned to his driver to move on. On the morning in question, Marianne Brewster awoke sick. In her impatient, fretful way, she called out to Janie, who slept in an adjoining room. Janie was fast asleep, but she was used to being aroused out of her sleep at unreasonable hours by Marianne, and she threw on her dressing gown and hastened her. I want some tea, began Marianne. I am as sick and thirsty as I can be. She was really of a sickly constitution, and to hear her complain of being sick and thirsty was nothing unusual. Janie, in her loving nature, her sweet patience, received the information with as much concern as though she had never heard it before. She bent over Mary Ann and spoke tenderly. ''Where do you feel pain, dear?'' ''In your head or chest?'' ''Where is it?'' ''I told you that I was sick and thirsty, and that is enough.'' Peevishly, she responded, ''Go and get me some tea.'' As soon as I can, said Janey, soothingly. There is no fire yet; the girls are not up; I do not think it can be later than four, by the look of the morning." Very well, cried Mary Anne. The sobs being contrived by the catching up of her breath in temper, not by tears, You can't call the mines, I suppose, and you can't put yourself the least out of the way to alleviate my suffering. You want to go to bed again and sleep till nine o'clock. When I am dead, you will wish you were more like a sister. You possess great, rude health yourself, and you feel no compassion for those who do not an assertion unjust and untrue like many others made by Mary Anne. Janie did not possess rude health, though she was not like her sister, always complaining, and she had more compassion for Mary Anne than she deserved. I will see what I can do, she said gently. You shall soon have some tea. Passing into her own room, Janie hastily dressed herself. When Marianne was in one of her exacting moods, there could be no more sleep for Janie. I wonder, she said to herself, whether I could not make the fire without waking the girls. They had such a hard day's work yesterday, cleaning the house. ''Yes, if I can get some chips, I will make a fire.'' She went down to the kitchen, hunted up what was required, laid the fire and lighted it. It did not burn quickly. She thought the chips might be damp, and she got the bellows. There she was, on her knees, blowing at the chips.'' and sending the blaze amid the coals, when someone entered the kitchen. Miss Janey, It was one of the girls, Eliza. She had heard a noise in the kitchen, and had arisen. Janey explained that her sister was sick, and tea was wanted. Why did you not call us? You went to bed so late and had worked so hard. I thought that I would not disturb you. But it is not a lady's work, miss. I think ladies should put on gloves when they undertake it. She laughed and look at my black hands. What would Mr. Taylor say if he saw you on your knees lighting a fire? He would say I was doing right, Eliza, replied Janie. A shade of reproof in her firm tones, though the allusion caused the colour to crimson her cheeks. The girl had been with them some time and had assumed more privilege than a less respected servant would have been allowed to do. The tea-ready Janie carried a cup of it to her sister with a slice of toast that she had made. Mary Ann drank the tea at a draught, but she turned with a shiver from the toast. She seemed to be shivering much. Who was so stupid as to make that? You might not know I could not eat it, I am too sick. Janie began to think she looked very sick. Her face was flushed, shivering though she was. Her lips were dry. Her bright eyes were unnaturally heavy. She gently laid her hands, cleanly washed upon her sister's brow. It felt burning and Marianne screamed out, Do keep your hands away from me. My head is splitting with pain. All at once, Janie thought of the fever, the danger from which they had been reckoning to have passed. Would you like me to bathe your forehead with water? Ann asked Janie kindly. I would like you to stop until things are asked for and not to worry me, replied Marianne. Janie sighed, not for the cross temper, Marianne was always cross in sickness, but for the suffering she thought she saw and the half doubt, half dread, which had arisen within her. I think I had better call mamma. she thought to herself. Though if she sees nothing unusual, the matter with Mary Ann, she will only be angry with me. Proceeding to her mother's chamber, Janey knocked gently. Her mother slept still, but the entrance around her, Mamma, I do not like to disturb you. But Anne is sick. Sick again. And only last week she was in bed three days. Poor dear sufferer. Is it her chest? Mamma? she seems unusually ill. Otherwise, I should not have disturbed you. I feared, I thought you will be angry with me. If I say perhaps... Say what don't stand like a statue, Janie. Janie dropped her voice. Dear Mama, suppose it should be the fever. For one startling moment, Mrs. Brewster felt as if a dagger was piercing her heart. The next she turned upon Janie. Fever for Marianne. How dared she prophesy it, a low common fever confined to the poor and the town, and which had gone away or all but, was it likely to turn itself back again and come up here to attack her darling child? Janie, the tears in her eyes, said she hoped it would prove to be only a common headache that it was her love for Marianne which awoke her fears. The mother proceeded to the sick chamber, and Janie followed. Mrs Brewster was not accustomed to observe caution, and she spoke freely of the fever before Marianne, seemingly for the purpose of casting blame upon Janie. Mary Ann did not catch the fear. She ridiculed Janie as her mother had done for several hours. Mrs Brewster did not catch it either. She would have summoned medical aid at first. But Mary Jane, in her fretfulness, protested that she would not have a doctor. Later, she grew worse, and Dr Brown was sent for You saw him in his buggy going to the house. Mrs. Brewster came forward to meet him, Janie full of anxiety near her. Mrs. Brewster was a thin woman with a shriveled face and a sharp red nose. Her grey hair banded closely under a white cap Her style of headdress never varied. It consisted always of a plain cap with a quilled border, trimmed with purple ribbon. Her black dresses she had not laid aside since the death of her husband, and intended never to do so. She grasped the arm of the doctor. "'You must save my child.' Higher aid permitting me, answered the surgeon. What makes you think it's the fever? For months I have been summoned by timid parents to any number of fever cases, and when I have arrived in haste they have all turned out to be no fever at all. This is the fever, Mrs Brewster replied, Had I been more willing to admit that it was, you would have been sent for hours ago. It was Janie's fault. She suggested at daybreak that it might be the fever, and it made my darling girl so angry that she forbade my sending for advice. But she is worse now. Come and see her. The doctor laid his hand upon Janie's head with a fond gesture as he followed Mrs. Brewster. All the neighbors of Belleville loved Janie Brewster. Tossing upon her uneasy bed, her face crimson, her hair floating untidily around it, lay Mary Ann, still shivering. The doctor gave one glance at her. It was quite enough to satisfy him that the mother was not mistaken. Is it the fever? Impatiently asked Marianne, unclosing her hot eyelids. If it is, we must drive it away, said the doctor cheerfully. Why should the fever have come to me? She rejoined in a tone of rebellion. Why was I thrown from my buggy last year and my back sprained? Such unpleasant things do come to us. To sprain your back is nothing compared with the fever. You got well again. And we will get you well if you will be quiet and reasonable. I am so hot. My head is so heavy. The doctor who had called for water and a glass was mixing up a brown powder which he had produced from his pocket. She drank it without opposition and then he lessened the weight of the bedclothes and afterwards turned his attention to the bedroom. It was close and hot and the sun, which had just burst forth brightly, from the grey sky shone full upon it. He have got chimney stuffed up, he exclaimed. Marianne will not allow it to be open, said Mrs Brewster. She is sensitive to cold, and feels the slightest draught. The doctor walked to the chimney turned up his coat cuff and wristband and pulled down a bag filled with shavings. Some soot came with it and covered his hand, but he did not mind that. He was a little given to ceremony, as Mrs Brewster was to caution, and he walked leisurely up to the washstand to wash it off. Now if I catch that bag or any other bag up there obscuring the air I shall pull down the bricks and make a good big hole that the sky can be seen through it. Of that I give you notice, madam. He next pulled the window down at the top behind the blind but the room at its best did not find favour with him it is not airy, it is not cool, he said. Is there not a better ventilated room in the house? If so, shall she be moved into it? My room is a cool one, interposed Janey eagerly. The sun never shines upon it, doctor. It appears that Janey, thus speaking, must have reminded the doctor that she was present for in the same unceremonious fashion that he had laid his hands upon the chimney bag. He now laid them upon her shoulder and walked her out of the room. You go downstairs, Miss Janey, and do not come within a mile of this room again until I give you notice. During this time, Mary Ann was talking imperiously and fretfully. I will not be moved into Janie's room. It is not furnished with half the comforts of mine. It has only a little bedside carpet. I will not go there, doctor. Now see here, Marianne, said the doctor firmly. I am responsible for getting you well and I shall take my own way to do it. If I am to be contradicted at every suggestion, your mother can summon someone else to attend to you. I will not undertake it. My dear, you shall not be moved to Janie's room, said her mother coaxingly. You shall be moved to mine. It is larger than this, you know, doctor with a draft through it, if you wish to open the door and windows. Very well, replied the doctor. Let me find her in it when I come again this evening, and if there's a carpet on the floor, take it up. Carpets were never intended for bedrooms. He went into one of the sitting rooms with Mrs. Brewster as he descended "'What do you think of the case?' she earnestly inquired. "'There will be some difficulty with it,' was his candid reply. "'Her hair must be washed regularly.' "'Washed regularly,' said Mrs Brewster. "'That is going to be extremely challenging, "'but she does have the most beautiful hair, "'and she is a daughter.' That deserves the very best. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling a little drowsy, and if you're not quite feeling tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you another episode very soon. Good night.